Father, thank you so much for this, your word. I pray now as we hear it preached, it would be helpful, drawing us closer to you, in faith and in obedience. Help us to see you and ourselves in the world as you do. Help us join in what you are doing in the world. I pray that this word would be a help to our church. To be a church that is serving you and your ends for your glory. And we pray this together in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I won a lot of board games over the holidays. A game called Liar's Dice, which oddly enough, our family learned at church. Won that a few times. I won Scrabble a few times. Monopoly once. Always making sure to post my scores on the refrigerator so that everyone can see them. But we played a game on New Year's Day which I did not win, and it was an absurd, irrational, unfair game. It's a board game called The Worst Case Scenario, The Game of Surviving Life. In this game, you advance by choosing the right answer to ridiculous questions about situations which are not true to life, in my opinion. For example, how to toast, how to propose a toast in the Netherlands. How to follow tracks across quicksand. I'm sure this is important for someone's life, not mine. How to make a filling in your teeth in the wild. How to drive in a rainstorm with a broken windshield. Hint, it involves pantyhose. I thought against, I think against my two oldest children and my younger brother, I came in last place. Several times I thought, where is Ben Hurley when you need him? I'm sure there's going to be a question where the answer is, get the tourniquet and do what you must do. That question never came. How do you think about life's scenarios? How you get there? What's the point in those circumstances? And most importantly, what do you think God is doing in scenario to scenario in your life? Is your goal and is God just there to help you survive one worst case scenario after another? What is God doing in the world? Here is the answer in Acts 27 and 28. God is providentially sending his salvation 
to all nations through the testimony of his church. This is what God is doing in the world. God is providentially sending out his salvation to all nations through the testimony of his church. We find ourselves at the end of the book of Acts. We're going to see this picture in 27 and 28 of what God is doing in the world and how we can work with him. It's been some time, so let's catch up on the book of Acts. The book of Acts begins with Jesus having raised from the dead, sending out his apostles to the world to tell all nations from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth about Christ. And after they are filled with the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2, that is the exact path they take through the book of Acts, from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and then to the ends of the earth. And since chapter 9 or so, we have been following nearly exclusively one man's path, one man's part in taking the good news of Jesus all over the world. And his name is Paul. Paul was found by the Lord himself on the way to a city called Damascus in order to imprison, to persecute, and if he could even kill Christians and bring some of them back to Jerusalem to imprison them there. But upon seeing Jesus Christ, Paul actually became a Christian. On his way to kill Christians, he became Christian. Instead, he joined the church and he started telling people about Jesus. And Paul has gone from Jerusalem through Asia and back twice. And now, God has said that Paul must go to Rome to proclaim the gospel there. Chapter 27 and 28 are the last chapters in Acts. 27, how Paul finally gets to Rome. And 28, how it goes when he gets there. In these two chapters, we are going to see that God is providentially sending his salvation to all nations through the testimony of his church. And two ways he does this, primarily the end of Acts, are by the providential or the, the winds of his providence and by the proclamation of the word. How does God send out salvation so that the whole world can be saved from their sin and from his wrath? It is through the winds of his providence and the proclamation of the word. The wind. The wind really is the difference maker in chapter 27. Did you catch that while Megan was reading it? Paul is in Roman custody. He was arrested. Now he's in prison, heading to trial in Rome. To get from Jerusalem to Rome, that's a 1,400-mile sailing trip on a ship full of Roman soldiers, over 250, as we read. Providentially for Paul, it's a protected, free ride. All expenses paid for him. Way back in chapter 23, verse 11, the Lord stood by Paul in one of his darkest nights and appeared to him and said to Paul, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. 
So Paul was going to get to Rome one way or another, but Luke records how. You might have noticed the chapter includes great detail about the route or route, if you're trying to sound smart. Cities, ports, coastlands, harbors, directions of the wind. I mean, some of this chapter reads like a boring travel log. But there is a message in the route. When you are sailing, basically every scenario in your trip, at least in the ancient times, is determined by the wind. Weather, the direction of the weather and the wind, is a matter of your safety and survival. Not only you're getting there, it all depends on the wind. I want you to skim through chapter 27 with me, beginning in verse uh, 4, and I want you to see the progression of the wind in chapter 27 and see the message that God's Word has for us. Look at chapter 27, verse 4, there at the end. What's one of the first things it says about their trip? The winds were against us. This is an understatement as an introduction to what we have just read. Chapter 27, verse 7. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty. Not to Rome, somewhere on the way to Rome. Verse 8. Coasting along with difficulty. In modern geography, they just went from Syria, which is north of Israel, along the coast of Turkey. So they went northwest, which is Turkey is northwest of Syria. They followed along that coast to the island of Crete. So it's difficult to see it in the text, but they just sailed hundreds of miles from verse 4 to verse 8. And the entire trip described as coasting along with great difficulty. 27 verse 9 and 10. Much time had passed. The voyage was now dangerous. So Paul says, verse 10, as they're about to set out on the next leg of their journey, I perceive the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. So Paul even knows what they're getting into. He knows this is not going to be, you know, a Disney cruise. Verse 14, when the south wind blew gently, supposing they had obtained their purpose, in other words, they found good weather, they weighed anchor and sail along Crete close to the shore. But soon a tempestuous wind called the northeaster struck down from the land. So I'm not, a, I'm not a navigator, I'm not a sailor, but I understand this is what's happening. In order to stay away from the high, high sea, the wind of the sea, they were hugging the shore as close as they could to try to get out of that wind. And then, all of a sudden, a great wind strikes down from where? From the land. There's no safe place to go. Verse 15, when the ship was caught but this wind that had come off the land where they were trying to be safe, and they could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. They gave up. 
We're done trying. We can't fight this wind. We are done trying to sail this wind. Pull the anchors up, let go of the rudder, and we're done. And they just went wherever the wind would blow them at this point. It was too much. It was too hard. It was too difficult. It was impossible. Well, they just let the wind take them wherever it would. So verse 16, it says, we managed with difficulty. Difficulty again. Verse 18, since we were so violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. They're beginning to lose hope. They're beginning to realize this ship is going to go down. Forget the cargo. All right? Forget what your mother packed for you. Throw it over. We're not going to make it. The luggage is gone. Verse 20, no sun and no stars. This is like trying to make it through New York City without Google Maps or even a paper map in the dark with no headlights, except you're in the ocean on a boat and you're in a storm. No idea which way to go. The Adriatic Sea is hundreds and hundreds of miles north and south. Not having any stars, not being able to see the sun, means even if we could control the ship, we don't even know where we're going. We don't even know where to go. Verse 20, For days, and no small tempest lay upon us. Here's what they say. All hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. We're, done. We're, just done. We're not even hoping that we'll get out of this. This ship is going to go down somewhere between Crete and Rome. Verse 21, they have been food without a long time. They've been fasting according to ritual. Look at verse 26, so they're hungry. Verse 26, for this very night, Paul speaks to them. This very night there stood before me an angel of the Lord God to whom I belong and whom I worship. So God, Paul's God has a word for this centurion and the 200 plus prisoners. And the word from his God is this. Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. So here they are in the middle of the Adriatic Sea, no headlights on their ship, so to speak, storm-tossed. We've thrown our luggage over, and Paul says, my God says, I'm going to stand before Caesar. It will happen. By the way, he's in Rome. He's not in the Adriatic Sea. And behold, here's what Paul says, God has granted you all those who sail with you. You're going to be saved because you're with me. Verse 25, so take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But, here's the last message from my God, we must run aground on some island. Stuck out here in the ocean for two weeks, I've heard from my God, and what's his plan? We are going to shipwreck on some island. Friends, only with God. In his wisdom and power, could a shipwreck that breaks your ship into splinters be a rescue plan? Do you see how opposite we so often think about God and what he's doing? We crave survival such that we might miss the shipwrecks that God uses to save. 27 verse 27, 
when the 14th night had come, we've been out here in the sea doing this for two weeks, the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. The boat that would have gotten them from the boat to the shore when there was no port. Just imagine the Titanic out there cutting loose all of their rescue boats way before they hit the iceberg. No luggage, no rescue boats, no food. They have abandoned themselves to the destiny of the ship and now, it seems, to Paul's God. The ship, as we read, is ripped apart, crashed into the reef of the island of Malta, which was somehow, somehow, on the way to Rome. Now watch the weather chain. Chapter 28, verse 11. After three months, at this point Paul's been bitten by the snake, he has survived, the island has received him well. After three months, we set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria, which is a long way from where they are, with the twin gods as a figurehead. So there just happened to be a ship that wintered there, and there just happened to have been the ship that has twin gods as the figurehead. Hold on to those little nuggets. Putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days, and from there we made a circuit and arrived at Regium. And after one day, I'm in verse 13, after one day, a south wind sprang up, which is what they needed because they needed to go north from the island of Malta around up to Rome. And on the second day, we came to Pitioli, which is around the horn and just really close to Rome itself. Smooth sailing. Two days, we're there. There we found brothers, which in this passage means Jews, Israelites. And we were invited to stay with them for seven days. And so, that's how Paul got to Rome. Do you see the change? Difficulty, 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 wind, storms, tempests, no food, no boats, crash, 14 days of uncontrollable drifting, unnavigated sailing, a long time, and then a south wind sprang up, which they needed the whole time, and in two days they were there. Now what is the meaning of this? I'll just remember our psalm from last Sunday's sermon, Psalm 24, verse 1 and 2. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein, for he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. As Cal mentioned last week, God controls every moment and every molecule in the world. Now, what is the point of the narrative here in Acts? The main point is God is the God of the wind and everyone who reads this should be praising God and bowing before God, saying God is the one that miraculously and wonderfully and faithfully got, got, got Paul to Rome. Over and over and over, beginning with Paul's journey, God has taken Paul through tragedy, saved his life, wrecked his life, and saved him again to get him to Rome. And see how Luke adds this important detail that is meant to glorify God as the one who controls the wind and the one who controls the seas. Remember Paul shipwrecked on the island of Malta? 
50 miles from the nearest coast of the mainland. There just happened to be a ship that could take 250 plus men that had just happened to winter there on this island. Don't you know the saying, when one ship is broken into pieces, another ship has wintered on the island? What are the odds? What are the odds? And what was the figurehead on the boat, on the bow of that boat? In chapter 21, verse 11, we saw that the boat that got on from Alexandria, it had beneath its bow the twin gods as figurehead. The twin gods as figurehead. Who are the twin gods? Luke says it like everyone knows who they are. Their names were Castor and Pollux. They were sons of Zeus in Greek and Roman mythology. And listen, these twin deities were known to aid, you cannot believe this, were known to aid shipwrecked sailors after receiving their sacrifices to receive from these gods favorable winds. Because these two twins, it was said in Greek mythology, because they excelled over the other Argonauts in their seamanship, the two brothers were anointed with stars on their heads. And the stars required for navigation at sea, as we read, indicated that they are the guardian angels for sailors. Paul's arrival to Rome for the gospel is an indictment on Rome's false gods. After all the days at sea, the winds randomly changing the directions, the winds dying, the storms crashing onto their boat, and then the shipwreck. And now, Paul coasts toward Rome, riding the twin gods like some sea creature he tamed. I just imagine Paul standing at the bow of the boat, Wind in his hair, one foot up on the rail, and beneath him, wooden statues of Roman gods of the wind and the sea. And this is how God brings the news of Jesus to Rome. Usually, if someone was in the Adriatic Sea and they were having a difficult time, they would cry out to Castor and Pollux and beg for their mercy so that they might survive. Instead, Paul broke bread and he prayed to his God and he thanked God knowing, knowing it was God's plan to wreck their ship. Not that they would save, be saved from a shipwreck, but that God was going to wreck their ship and that was his plan to run up onto an island and still somehow knowing God was going to get him by that, to profess the gospel to Caesar in Rome. The God who brought Paul to Rome is the only God there is. The God who created the earth, the God who controls the wind, who speaks to the wind, who speaks to the waves. This is what God is doing in the church the great commission that Jesus has given his church to proclaim the gospel to all nations, to 
baptize all nations and make disciples of all nations. To take the gospel from Jerusalem to Judea and to Samaria and to the ends of the earth, this is how God is making it happen over and over and over from Acts 2 to Acts 28 to 2024. God does it over and over and over and over. The providential winds blew Paul to Rome that he might proclaim the word in Rome. So this is what Paul does when he gets there. The providential winds blow Paul to Rome. In other words, God gets him there so that he can then proclaim the word. This is how God is providentially sending his salvation to the nations through the testimony of the church. By providence, he puts them where the word must go, and then the church testifies to Jesus Christ, to the nations about Jesus Christ. Upon arrival, what does Paul do? Does he go out and eat, find a buffet, go get new clothes? I don't know, maybe. Maybe. But upon arrival, he begins to teach about Jesus. All those providential winds, all the difficult shipwreck and then finding a ship for what? Acts 28, verse 23. When he finds these brothers, these fellow Israelites, when they appointed a day for him, they came to him, verse 23, at his lodging in greater numbers. And from morning till evening, what was Paul doing? What did Paul go to Rome to do? From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the law or to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. Paul was taking the life of Jesus, holding him up against the Old Testament and saying, it's him, Jews, you have Moses, you have the prophets, you have the law, and I am telling you, it's him. It's Jesus. Jesus is the salvation of the Lord. Let me just encourage you today. If you're here and you are wondering, or you have wondered, or you haven't wondered, but I'm helping you wonder now, what is the message of the Bible? What is the message of the Bible? It's that God has brought salvation for the, from the punishment of our sins, which we've all committed through Jesus being crucified and rising from the dead. What Paul is saying when he gets to Rome is that the whole Bible has been saying Jesus is the way of salvation and Jesus alone. Believe on him who was crucified for sin and raised from the dead and be saved. That's the message of the whole Bible. There's not a message in the Old Testament and then a new message in the New Testament. There's just one book, Paul is saying, and I'm trying to tell you that it's all been talking about Christ, which means the Bible has the answer for the problem in the world. The great problem in the world is that all mankind, every single one of us, our children, me, us, We've all sinned. Every single person that's ever been created has sinned against God. We've all rejected God even though we were created by him. It's a cursed world that we live in because we've sinned against him with our hearts and with our lives. This is why the world is so bad. In many ways, this world is so much better than we could ever imagine. If we will stop and look around, if we read the news for a few moments, if we talk to our friends and our family, if we're honest with ourselves about ourselves, We'll see that it's filled with sin. We steal, we cheat, we murder, we lie, we hate, we are greedy, we are sexually immoral. We could go on and on. 
As Paul would later write to the Romans in his letter to them, we exchange the truth of God for a lie. We worship the creation rather than the creator, which means we are in debt to God with our lives and we deserve wrath because we've sinned against our creator. And we can't justify ourselves. So here's what Paul says in Romans 1. He says it this way, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Well, that's everyone. And now Paul, providentially brought to Rome, is proclaiming that if you will look in the law of Moses, you'll look in the prophets, and then you look at Christ, he's trying to convince them and persuade them the whole Bible is talking about Jesus coming to save us from the wrath of God. That's the one main message of the Bible, that the only way anyone and everyone in the world can be saved from having sinned against God, it's not through Abraham, and it's not through Moses, not even David, not Solomon, certainly not Muhammad, not Siddhartha. The world cannot be saved through Biden, nor Trump. The world cannot be saved through your spouse or through your children. We can only be saved by God through Jesus dying on our, for our sins, not the law or anyone else. Way back in chapter 4, the apostles were arguing before the council in Jerusalem, and they said very clearly, there is no salvation, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. That was to the Jews, the Jews in Jerusalem. Who did the, the Jews trust for salvation? Moses and Abraham. And here Paul is in Rome saying Moses and Abraham were about Jesus all along. See how the winds of God's providence blew Paul to Rome so that he could tell everyone about this covenantal historical shift. Jews and Gentiles from all nations are all invited to salvation through Jesus Christ, through him alone. That's the message to you today. To be saved from your sins, to be reconciled to God, Put your faith in Jesus because he, as God's son, was crucified for you and rose from the dead for that you, so that you might be forgiven. And church, here's an encouragement for us as we continue to follow God's providence and tell the world about Christ. They will listen. They will listen. The, these words in part represent the covenantal shift in the growth of the kingdom of God there's a parenthesis in Israel for a time and it's now shifted towards Abraham's true promise and true descendants by faith, the church and all who trust in Jesus Christ. And look at what Paul says, his last words in chapter 28 there. What are Paul's last words recorded when the Jews again reject Jesus as the Christ? Paul says, then we are going to go to the Gentiles, to the nations, why? Last words of Paul in the book of Acts. They will listen. There's an encouragement for you, church. Just built on the covenant plans and the prophetic affirmation in Isaiah, the last words of Paul, they will listen. Go to the nations. The nations are going to come to Christ. People are going to come to Christ as the gospel is preached. And how ironic it is that God wrecked Paul's ship on a distant barbarian island 
where salvation came and was gladly received. But when it was brought to the rulers in Jerusalem or in Rome of Israel, they would have nothing to do with Paul or Christ. You see what God is doing in the world? God is providentially sending his salvation to all nations through his church, witnessing about Jesus. He does this by providential winds and by proclamation of the gospel wherever his winds take us. A couple of encouragements to close. One, let me just encourage you to take time to be thankful for how God brought you to Jesus Christ. Let me just be thankful. Consider the winds that blew you to the gospel of Christ. It might have included abuse even. It might have included a path of divorce. Years in prison. Where were you born? Why? Why are you there? Why are you here? How did you come to hear about Jesus anyway? Perhaps your life scenario is like a pill you swallow to make you well, but leaves an awful taste. A line from a favorite song. Isn't it good to know Christ and the forgiveness of sin? Looking back now, isn't any hardship you could ever imagine worth knowing Jesus and knowing God? You might consider writing someone a text or a letter today, maybe to your parents or to an aunt, to a college roommate, and just thank God because they're the ones who gave you a Bible. They're the ones who led you to Christ, who showed you Christ, who told you the gospel. You could just write them and tell them, I, I don't know what all pains and troubles you might be facing or have ever faced, but I, I came to know Christ because of you. Maybe it's your parents and they've already passed. Thank God for them. By the circumstantial means of our salvation, come to say with Charles Spurgeon, I have learned to kiss the waves that throw me against the rock of ages. Thank God for your life, no matter how, many, how wonderful or terrible it has been to bring you to know Christ. It is surely God's providential winds that have brought you there. Is it not? Maybe write down troubling events that were on your path to coming to know Christ. Maybe spend this afternoon just thinking, how did I get there? What awful trail was before me or others? How many shipwrecks led to that gospel for me to hear? Maybe it wasn't the immediate accident, but a series of events in your lifetime. Thank God for your life that somehow God's providential winds brought you to hear about the gospel of Jesus Christ and you listened or even brought you here today to hear about Jesus Christ. Be thankful. If God is working in the world to providentially send his message of salvation, then it is God who we should thank for bringing the gospel to us all the way out here in the nations. And secondly, let me just encourage you to proclaim Christ wherever God's providential winds blow. Proclaim Christ wherever God's providential winds blow. Instead of seeing every shipwreck as a disaster for God to save you from, 
Instead of looking at your life as a series of worst case scenarios that you're trying to get out of so that you can just survive, might you repent from complaining about the very scenarios which God means to bring salvation to someone else? Might we need to repent from despondency and disbelief? We thought God had come to save us from all of our troubles and in fact God is ordaining troubles as a means of getting us out of ourselves and our lives and our patterns to proclaim the gospel. Let me just encourage you to think, can you imagine who you might be able to share the gospel this week at work because of traffic making you late to a neighbor, to a stranger? Let me just encourage you to be ready to share the facts about Jesus' life and death wherever the providential winds of the Lord blows you. Many scenarios we will encounter less awful and more predictable than, are more, less awful and more predictable than a shipwreck. What's going to happen this week, your worst case scenario, odds are, will be something very regular, something very normal. Can you just stop for a minute and imagine how God might use that? Who might God put in your path that you know, that you might even know that you see often, that you could talk with them or ask them about Christ. You could try to persuade them from God's word as Paul did, that Jesus is the Christ. That you might pray like Paul did, that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ. Just think about giving someone a book, a Christian book to read or a Bible to read. A lot of people don't have Bibles in their homes. Even though they can find it on the internet for free, give someone a Bible. John Calvin became a Christian because someone gave him a copy of uh, Martin Luther's work. Trust the winds of God's providence have put you where you are to tell others about Christ. Here's a wonderful example to encourage you. And Garrett Kell is a pastor in Alexandria, Virginia. And on December 21st, just a few weeks ago, their 15-year-old daughter, Eden, suffered a serious seizure <coughs> He writes, Eden suffered a serious seizure while our family was with friends in Richmond. She was transported by ambulance to a Virginia Children's Hospital. Her seizures were unrelenting and her condition worsened to the point that she required sedation. She was placed on a ventilator. EEG reports showed seizures continuing in her brain throughout the night and into the day despite various attempts to slow them. She suffered roughly 20 hours of seizures. Garrett, Wells, uh, Garrett writes, after Christmas, she was flown back to the D.C. area by helicopter. Today, even, she is still heavily sedated. Only in the last two days, she has blinked at her parents and squeezed her parents' hands. Still having no idea what has really happened, they have been updating online day to day. I just want you to listen to the last part of Garrett's journal entry from December 29th the day they flew back to D.C. area to the Children's Hospital. After flying with a helicopter with his unconscious 15-year-old daughter, he added his last prayer request. Pray for us to develop relationships with the new hospital workers in D.C. Children's. Ask us, God, to give us favor in their eyes and open doors for the gospel. Friends, do we think like this? Let's think like this. Let's look at every tragedy, every scenario, not as the worst case scenario that God might help us survive, but what might in God's ordained providence be the best case scenario to get the gospel to someone who's never heard it. 
Isn't this how God works? Pray like this. Have this disposition. Be thankful for your salvation and proclaim the gospel where God's providential winds blow you. Let us say with Paul in Philippians 1, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, my imprisonment has really served to advance the gospel. Let us say that wherever we go, whatever we do, what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel because no one can stop God. The book of Acts ends that Paul was there proclaiming the kingdom of God, the kingdom of the Father, and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son. And he did so with all boldness, without hindrance, which we know was provided by the Spirit of God. Let us do the same. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word today and for kindness to convict us with it, to encourage us with it, instruct us with it. We pray that our hearts would be swelled, our, our souls would be enlivened by our thankfulness for our own salvation. That we would have a vision, we would have an imagination, a trust of what you are doing And look this week to see where we might tell someone else about Christ as you providentially continue to place us 